Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast, and in particular, the December Journal Club session uh, with myself, Victoria Brazel, and Ben Simon. How are you? Mate, I am good. Looking forward to Christmas holidays and uh, settling down a little bit, but it's been a wonderful year and nice to celebrate it at the end with you. Absolutely. And I think we've been tested this year a little bit with some pandemic-related things, so uh, good on us for sticking with it, but uh, good on the people who listen to us especially. Uh, I guess we're a little bit excited still. It's a month later, but we're still coming down after Sim Reconnect, aren't we? Absolutely. It was just such a fun day and what an amazing uh, group of talent that we actually got to see from a very wide variety of uh, interesting projects from around the country, really. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, Simulcast listeners who weren't there, we had our joint Bond University Simulcast uh, Sim Reconnect event. About 90 of us got together, had some short talks, had lots of networking, and I think I was left with a very inspired uh, feeling after the day. And for those of you who weren't there or those of you who were, we will be giving a little summary tape uh, that will come out shortly, as well as some excerpts from our live simulcast on stage journal club, which was great fun, Ben. And thank you for your contributions, both in your talk uh, and in that journal club. Oh, no problem. I'm looking forward to continuing it today. Yes, me too. All right. Well, why don't you kick us off? We've got four papers again, and you're going to start with something related to neonatal resuscitation. Uh, we did an issue near and dear to my heart. So uh, the article is entitled Newborn Resuscitation Simulation Training and Changes in Clinical Performance and Perinatal Outcomes, a clinical observation study of 10,481 births uh, by May Cicel Vadler et al. Uh, in Advances in Simulation. So I was thrilled that you picked this paper, Vic, because I'm really full of admiration for how, you know, I see this as a very meticulously facilitated study. Um, some of the outcomes are potentially a little bit less exciting in some ways, but I think for anyone in sim education, there's some really nice nuanced but specific mem- messages about organizational change and how to embed simulation within an organization. To provide our listeners with a little bit of context, though, I do think we need to give just a quick preview of neonatal resus. So to massively overgeneralize, a lot of otherwise healthy babies, when they're born, just sort of forget to breathe. And for some unfortunate reason with that first breath, if it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen well, a lot of babies develop something called secondary apnea, which is essentially that rather than noticing that their oxygen is low and taking a deep breath to fix it like we would, they just kind of keep holding their breath and that's not great. So fortunately, 99% of the time, it's a very easy fix. You just stimulate the baby a bit. And then if they're still not breathing, you give some breaths and then they get the hang of it and they start breathing and they're completely fine. So in many ways, it's actually a really alluring clinical problem to design an intervention around because there's a high volume of resuscitations where this happens. And a very simple intervention has a big impact on survival with still, particularly in low resource countries, a, a very high mortality rate comparatively to some of the rest of the world. So with that in mind, then, the Helping Babies Breathe program is a simulation-based education program used in over 80 low-resource countries to teach staff involved in perinatal care how to resuscitate infants effectively. Uh, 
Which brings us to this study from Hayden Lutheran Hospital in Tanzania, uh, where that Helping Babies Breathe program has been running since about 2010. So in mid-2016, the second edition of the course began to run in the hospital, as well as some secondary ward-based interventions that they did to more deeply embed the principles of the program. So in phase one, for 13 months, simulation equipment and some self-initiated training guides were implemented. And then in phase two, for 11 months, some uh, carefully recruited program champions were activated to further embed team and individual-based skill and scenario-based training into everyday practice. And then simultaneously, and I don't know about you, Vic, but this was what really uh, I found amazing, was there was an incredible volume of data metrics recorded 24 hours a day by a team of research assistants who were working on a continuous eight-hour schedule, taking note of an incredible volume of performance metrics uh, and demographics that are laid out within the article. Uh, And I was just stunned. (laughs) I don't know, you're nodding. Oh, totally nodding. And I think you're right. Here is a group of people who are very committed to improvement uh, and a group of people who know how to do that and also know how big data can actually be useful because what they did with that data, which I'm sure you're getting to, is really interesting because it informed real-time practice and feedback, but also then system changes in their training programs and and also even in their equipment design. So uh, I think many studies would be envious of this level of commitment. Absolutely. And even just, I assume there must have been some kind of Hawthorne effect as well from just the fact that you have someone observing every neonatal birth in the hospital over that period of time. Uh, so the things that were recorded were things like APGAR scores, labor complications, the educational level of the mother, time to bag valve mask ventilation, and whether the baby was breeding before bag valve mask ventilation was initiated, which is important, and I'll come back to it. So essentially, what did they find? Well, they included 10,481 births for analysis, 816 of those received ventilation, and at the same time in the hospital, there was an increase in premature newborns with low birth weight, which actually increases the complexity of their resuscitations. So adjusting for that increase, there wasn't a significant change in the risk for perinatal death over the course of this study. And the staff did, though, have better physical preparation for births with equipment availability increasing from 90 to 98%. And the median time from birth to the start of ventilation decreased from 118 to 101 seconds. And there wasn't a big change in newborns being ventilated within the so-called golden minute. Uh, Ventilation pauses did decrease during ventilation. And the frequency of staff who had participated in recent simulation-based training on newborn resus in the last seven days increased massively over the course of the study from 33% to 71%, which is pretty damn impressive. Just, again, aghast at the level of integration with the real world, the level of, as you said, systematic and multifaceted approach that includes training, data collection, Uh, engagement with champions and uh, as we haven't quite mentioned yet engagement across geography because this is a group who has lots of local leadership in Tanzania but also supported by the folks in Stavanger uh, Norway who have led this broader program and uh, this was a lot of the work that was or similar work related work presented in CSAM this year so yes breathtakingly impressed yeah 
Uh, I remember you and Eve uh, talking to me over chili eggs about uh, how impressive their work was and that they had uh, very much stolen CSAM in uh, many ways. <laughs> I'm glad um, you can remember that in competition to the chili egg sensation. <laughs> Um, yeah. So look, uh, while the team here, you know, weren't able to prove that they saved more babies with this intervention, there is such really nice data here. So it's a great demonstration of embedding that program on multiple layers with both an educational intervention, some ward-based goals for spaced repetition and equipment availability and just-in-time training. And I think for me, my big take home, like the thing I'll remember from this study is actually about the recruitment of local champions, uh, because, uh, getting your local champions on board is so frequently mentioned as a core component of organizational, cha organizational change. Uh, but in this study, we just have these beautiful metrics to show what an impact that makes because until those champions came on board, the uptake of simulation rehearsal within, on the ward was essentially static or even I think from memory had not gone down a little bit. And then suddenly there was this massive change as soon as these local leaders got on board. Um, and there were some nice, uh, not super specific, but uh, some descriptions of the team's approach to recruiting those champions. Uh, where they stated that local champions were junior midwives who were carefully selected to their personality traits and their beneficial influence in the ward. And they didn't receive any remuneration for this assignment or possess other roles apart from their clinical tasks. And it just kind of struck me as, you know, the power of finding people who have passion within an organization and, and what an incredible impact they can have on the rest of a team's behavior if they're giving uh, the ability and the uh, training to do that. So I certainly assume some Hawthorne effect must have been likely given the incredible you know, observation that happened. But I also loved the carefully constructed way they went about their analysis because uh, this would be a very easy study to just rush in and actually teach your staff to do the wrong thing and rush to ventilate in a scenario where for most childbirths they don't actually need to be medicalized. So in the discussion, they comment on how difficult finding that nuance was because you want bag valve mask ventilation to happen but for the right infant at the right time not to have every healthy infant bagged just to hit metrics and medicalize every birth and so there was some nice thoughtful documentation by the research assistants about whether the babies were breathing before um, ventilation was started uh, to divide out the should have hads versus the actually didn't needs so overall Vic I was just super impressed and very grateful to the team for for writing this up uh, absolutely. And the other take home that I have is yet another example where the low dose, high frequency training works. I, you don't train for very long at a single instance, maybe five minutes worth of training, but doing it 50 times uh, and not necessarily getting a whole breadth of what you're training, but really focused. This is your assessment. This is your metrics to guide practice. And then this is how you do the ventilation when you need to. So I'm with you. Uh, it's very hard to criticize this. Um, but, uh, but really, the most important thing is for us to take away what it takes to really do something like this well. Yeah, it's very humbling. All right. Well, that's probably a nice segue then onto our uh, next paper, which is from some of the same group. Uh, so this is a paper titled Simulation-Based Team Training in Acute Stroke. Is it safe to speed up? And it's from a uh, journal that we probably don't read much here at Simulcast called Brain and Behavior uh, from uh, just November 2022. 
And the reason I picked this, Ben, was because it's a good example of uh, when we're trying to improve a target, whether it's with simulation or in other ways, we also need to evaluate what might be our unintended consequences, or as our QI friends would say, the so-called balancing measures when we're trying to improve something. Uh, and the background to this is that this group, uh, in a slightly different author order, um, and as you will see, in fact, there's one or two similar authors to in our last paper, uh, this group already published a study that was a bit of a pin-up uh, in the translational sim literature where they undertook some simulation-based uh, intervention and a program of in situ sims that improved the care of patients with stroke, and that was published uh, a couple of years ago. And so just like you did, and I don't know if I can match it, a beautiful description of neonatal resuscitation, I'm going to try and do a uh, everyman's description of acute stroke care. Thank God. Because it's can important. Yeah, well, this context is actually pretty important. So uh, it's important for the study that they did. So some strokes, many of the important ones, are caused by clots in the blood vessels in the brain. And what we have come to practice now is trying to dissolve those clots by a number of ways, but one is by giving an injection of a thrombolytic agent that might dissolve the clots and hence reperfuse the brain and preserve function so that instead of, for instance, being completely hemiplegic, you end up with less disability over time. But there is a big but here. This is actually pretty hard to do because the tests for it are imprecise and they mostly rely on having a normal CT scan that doesn't show any bleeding, and so then you can assume it's a stroke. Unfortunately, a certain percentage of these patients actually have what are called stroke mimics, like just dizziness or like a hemiplegic migraine. So they look like strokes. The imaging is the same as strokes, i.e. it's normal. Uh, and if we give them treatment, obviously there's potential for harm because this treatment does have side effects like bleeding, uh, and so we might get some downsides to our treatment. So... How does this take us back to the studies? The first study, as I said, which was by AJMI, uh, was weekly in situ simulations for the stroke treatment team who are doing this kind of thing to rapidly identify the stroke, get them into the CT scanner and give this uh, blood, blood, blood clot busting therapy uh, quickly. And they, very spectacularly, as a result of these sims, or in fact after these sims, reduced their door-to-needle time from the patient arrival to when they gave the treatment from 27 to 13 minutes and used some systems to show that this would have improved the patient outcomes. This study, though, asks the next question that says, does this training have unintended consequences? Now that we've speeded up, have we started giving this treatment to more people who possibly shouldn't get it because we're now in such a um, focus as a result of all the training? So... What did they actually do? So they looked essentially at the same data that they had from the previous study. And they found that the before the strokes, when they were giving this treatment, about 16% of them were actually these stroke mimics, stuff like just dizziness or other stuff that wasn't actually a stroke. After the training, that number rose to 24.4%, which was pretty big. And in fact, in one year, in 2019, it was 32%. So of all the people getting the treatments, nearly a third of them weren't actually suffering the disease. So this is a bit tricky, isn't it? Um, does it matter? Well, and I guess this is where it gets a bit tricky. You'd think, well, we don't want to give treatments to people that don't need it. But if it doesn't cause any harm, maybe it doesn't matter. And beforehand, when they gave the 16% the treatment, they didn't have any bleeding in the head as a result of that. 
Uh, whereas afterwards, obviously their numbers had gone up a bit, they actually had two cases of intracerebral hemorrhage amongst the patients that didn't even have strokes. And we're going to quote from the paper here because, of course, they conjectured as to why this happened. The increase in stroke mimic rates is likely to be multifactorial and related to a focus on time, which was no doubt a part of the training, the acceptance of lower diagnostic specificity, which says let's just take as many people as we can and treat them because it's good for them to be treated early, and an increased comfort to perform this intravenous clot-busting treatment in stroke mimics. Uh, that seems like a reasonable rationale, Ben. What do you think? Because this is uh, these are big numbers of patients that don't actually have the disease that we're saying, yeah, but we've got to include them so that we get the people that will benefit. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I think this was what I most loved about the paper was the level of sophistication about the question itself. And it's just this, I think it's certainly, you know, it's a very familiar question for emergency physicians because it's this fundamental question of sensitivity over specificity. Uh, and essentially this organization has increased their institutional sensitivity to pick up a certain diagnosis and in the process dropped their specificity. Uh, and then the question being, what is the clinical impact of that for the patients who might be harmed versus the patients we've hopefully helped faster? So it was a fascinating and uh, very thoughtful approach to uh, an interesting and nuanced challenge. Yeah, and I think uh, our statistics friends would be giving us receiver-operator characteristic curves, you know, the plotting the sensitivity versus the one minus specificity and seeing where is this sweet spot. And, of course, you can only determine that if you know what is the downside to the, as you said, over-inclusion of patients in the treatment group uh, in the hope that you don't miss any um, any of the sort of true yeah. positives. Uh, and yeah. We, yeah, and we like we get this in paediatrics all the time because we have a sepsis program that is pushing us to give early antibiotics uh, versus the fact that actually it's really hard to detect sepsis early uh, in the kids who look okay. Uh, it's easy to detect late sepsis. And so, sure, we could just give everyone antibiotics, but that has... Uh, population risk uh, so absolutely. yeah we're often in this space and so great to see some research yeah absolutely and I think uh, this is is tricky but we have to know what the numbers are before we can decide what the appropriate number should be and I think it's important to say although they found these intracranial hemorrhages they were actually asymptomatic so at least in their numbers that they had which weren't huge but they were in the hundreds I think uh, they didn't actually come to any harm even if they did get this unnecessary treatment so maybe it doesn't sit with us nicely as of course we want to match the treatment with the disease but we can see that this is a numbers game to some level and if we have huge numbers who benefit from the early treatment maybe that is worth the downside of giving the treatment to people that don't need it uh, they did they didn't do a detailed cost analysis but they did say well obviously unneeded treatment has a cost but obviously also not treating stroke patients that need it also have a big cost. And look, my thoughts with this study are this is just a good idea about every time we focus on one thing, we have to recognise we're probably trading off another thing. And if we start really prioritising stroke care, then we will start to see it everywhere. Uh, and it's a bit, I think, in a much more basic way, who gets that space on the back of the toilet door uh, in the emergency department? Because that's apparently what we find important. And there is lots of important information there. But one thing goes up, it means another thing has to come down. 100%. I was at a, a PD rescue meeting on the weekend and uh, Dr. Vinay Nadkani was there and, and he had mentioned that uh, 
potentially sometimes we are over shocking non-shockable rhythms for similar reasons that we have uh, trained ourselves into minimizing downtime off the chest to the point where we're not actually analyzing whether we're in the right rhythm. So pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and I know this same problem even on a departmental level scale. Trauma centers, for instance, sometimes have worse outcomes for their cardiac and stroke patients because they are very focused on trauma, whereas the non-trauma centers aren't. So we can see uh, there's only so much institutional bandwidth as much as there is even individual clinician bandwidth. So again, I'm going to say congratulations because this isn't quite as cool work to do. It's just improving that you can go faster. That's the lovely outcome everyone wants. But then this one, which actually rigorously says, yes, but are we causing harm from our training, uh, is probably work that more of us should be doing. You're probably not going to get quite as many free dinners out of, uh, <laughs> out of <laughs> publishing this study. <laughs> Although we jest, uh, we do know that uh, Big Pharma is influential in the research space here. Uh, you know, simulation has fortunately been fairly spared some of the worst uh, excesses of that. But, uh, you know, if you have products, then you want people to buy it, use it, sell it, and you want research that supports it. And uh, I understand. Yeah. So two uh, very impressive papers with quite sophisticated questions and approach to their clinical problem. I really uh-huh. like them. Yes, look like Norway is winning the December Journal Club uh, at this point. Oh, that sounds uh, fairly familiar of those Scandinavian countries. They seem to it be is, quite clever. Hmm. But you've got an Australian study coming up now, so we'll see if we can reclaim a position on the podium at least. <laughs> the article uh, is uh, from the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. Uh, it's called Designing Virtual Reality Experiences to Supplement Clinician Code Black Education uh, by Nathan Moore et al. Uh, and this is a publication called A Type of Short Report on Simulation Innovation Supplement, uh, which was, is a, a lovely uh, new article type in IJOS, uh, which I just wanted to highlight because I think it's uh, being run approximately every six months or so where they dedicate some space to short re- reports like this. So it's a lovely low barrier opportunity for some of us to share something innovative that your teams are doing with the SIM community. And I really encourage people to submit. Uh, I'm sure this will continue to be a really popular segment of IJOS as it's both kind of a fun way to see what others are doing and a really nice entry point for people who are looking to dip their toes into publishing. So in this short report, Nathan Moore et al. describe how staff reflections on occupational violence and barriers to de-escalation training lead to, led to the development of a VR simulation program for Code Black education. So if you're unfamiliar with the term, a Code Black is essentially a hospital activation code for violence or personal threats. Uh, and the article briefly acknowledges in the intro, intro that you know hospital staff are increasingly experiencing some level of violence in the workplace. So the team at Westmead Hospital identified that this was a challenge. And the problem with this is often our solution is to get everyone through a type of corporate orientation like uh, de-escalation training, et cetera. And when you start looking at the volumes of staff that you have to get through, often what is quite an extended and fairly long course with lots of physical stuff involved, uh, that actually becomes a real challenge for an organization to be able to meaningfully get all of their staff through that training. Uh, so in many ways for me, Vic, while being a bit of a VR cynic often, this really hits the mark for me in terms of when to try VR for training because they needed something that was scalable for the large volume of staff who need support. Uh, and so it does seem like if you could make a good VR program, for, then this would actually be kind of a nice 
uh, hit for that, at least hitting some of that requirement. So the program composes of multiple parts, which are designed to hit different learning objectives. There are some straightforward videos to watch on the headset uh, of kind of gold standard de-escalation techniques being demonstrated by staff with simulated patients. There's some 360 degree videos of chemical restraint designed to provide a new staff member with the visual and auditory experience of that pathway before they go into resus. Because the first time you see that uh, actually might be a bit of a shock when you're seeing someone chemically sedated for the first time. So it's a nice kind of way of just having at least that mental rehearsal with also some visual and auditory supplements to it. Some staff similarly felt that these physical threats came out of nowhere, so the researchers felt that there was clearly the need for a module on recognising and coding behavioural escalation concerns where footage of actors in the ED is actually randomly combined, interestingly, so different behaviours from the same actor were randomly combined to make unique escalation patterns for participants to recognise and code. And then finally, and certainly for me, the most interesting part uh, was that there is a VR sim using conversational AI software to mimic an agitated family member advocating for their father with chest pain, uh, with participants able to respond and see the changes in behavior determined by their response. And that to me was some pretty alluring stuff because I suspect, well, I know because we talked about it in Edge this morning, but uh, having done some recent reading about the sudden upramp of AI sophistication and machine learning when it comes to conversational tools. It actually appears to be taking off in a pretty big kind of scaring way that could actually be really, really helpful when it comes to rehearsing how we approach an agitated and elevated patient. So really a nice little short report. Uh, I would love to check it out sometime. Mm, Absolutely. I, you know, admit and join you a little bit and wanting to believe with VR, but not really having found a lot of applications that I could say, yep, you've nailed it there. But I think there's some real reasons why this match might work well. And that is because if you have been in one of these situations, you know, it is a auditory, visual, affective experience that is quite confronting, that even if you were to mock that back up with security guards and, and uh, simulated patient actors, that's going to be quite hard to do and also have a certain price on all the people who are involved whereas this way you can potentially recreate some of that intense experience in a way that I think VR probably will be relatively well matched to so uh, I, I don't envy them the challenge of trying to evaluate this because it's super hard and when I saw at the end of their study how they were going to do some evaluation on their educational outcomes and other things, I thought, wow, that's actually going to be a bit hard because proving your outcomes in the real world and code black is hard. I guess they'll be able to say, did people like it and did people know more later? Uh, And that's not invalid evaluation, but uh, I don't envy them trying to prove it, but I wouldn't mind if they don't get a proof of it. I think we can see a match of it and that will probably make sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing for me with the chemical restraint problem is that I, that is actually certainly it's been my white whale from a simulation point of view, uh, particularly in adolescence where I think, you know, we, we it would be harder to recruit a simulated patient for that. But secondly, because it has always seemed to me to be a kind of ripe sim for 
stereotyping, derogatory acting, and uh, sort of pathways that diminish the respect or um, minimize the experience of the patient if not done really carefully. And so I can imagine like doing it in VR would allow you to consult well and manage those variables in a scalable way in in a way that's actually pretty unpredictable when it comes to uh, creating a sim like that. Mm, That's an interesting comment and I would tend to agree. That said, having done a lot of simulations with mental health professionals as opposed to uh, our kind of people who are occasional mental health professionals, uh, I find it's a very different tone when you do that with the mental health people and those issues are less so. Uh, But it's interesting, isn't it, what our cultural norms are around how we manage to deal with these patients in our own internal uh, thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to uh, how to assess our programs, whether they be virtual or other. So this picks up on that question about how do we evaluate what we do Uh, and this is a paper called improving team effectiveness using a program evaluation logic model a case study of the largest provincial simulation program in canada this is also from ijos it's an essay uh, that's the category it's in and alicia carba is the first author and the team from uh, calgary and alberta who are part of that largest provincial simulation program but also a couple of authors from the wilson center in toronto who are great medical education research think tanks. So I'm sure they contributed some of their expertise in that evaluation process. So why choose this article? Because I think it highlights this concept of logic models as a way of evaluating SIM programs. I'm not an expert on that, but I think this paper gives us a little bit of a hint of how we might move the needle a little bit on our evaluation processes. So what is the background here? What is the problem with evaluation? Well, I think particularly for simulation programs that are often uh, dealing in a complex way with complex problems, we end up focusing on very specific outcomes uh, in the in the in our haste to prove it works. Uh, just think, you know, how I did a pre. I felt not so good and confident and then I did a post after the sim training and I felt more confident. We get it. We know why people do this because it's actually hard to do too much more. It's a recurring issue for sim programs, this demonstrating value. Lots of pre-post type approaches, uh, things like Kirkpatrick's model where we have different levels of did they like it, have they learned something, has their practice changed, have their outcomes changed. Uh, these are not bad things to do, but can we do something that represents the multifaceted nature of SIM a bit better? So the article then goes on to talk about logic models. What are they? And essentially, this is a comprehensive, systematic approach that shifts away from just if it works to how or why does it work? And the key features, and I have seen this approach to evaluating a few different things, but here they're talking about SIM, is that you look at describing the inputs, so what sort of resources, personnel, and other things go into the program. What are the activities of the program? So, you know, we design scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. What are the outputs, which they describe as a tangible product or service? And then what are the outcomes? What change that occurs? So it may incorporate some of the instruments that we might have been using as this goes on to do, uh, but it actually takes a more comprehensive look. And so it's aimed at not just proving value, but really looking at uh, how also might we improve the program, which is often a good reason for program evaluation as well. 
And probably the most useful thing I thought, Ben, in this is they actually have a figure one in here that applies this logic model and they use the educational stream of their simulation program and they go through why do we do it, what have we had to put into it in terms of people and the funding, what are the activities that they get up to in terms of the simulation scenarios, what are the outputs, how much can they able to deliver, and then what are the outcomes. Uh, and so I, I really like that table because I see the breadth of this. Does that give you a sense of it, Ben? It did. I, I have to confess I struggled a little bit with this article in terms of uh, I don't think it was fully able for me to get my full head around it. I needed a bit more detail and a little bit more of a breakdown of as a how-to. Uh, and so I agree that figure one certainly very strongly visually gave you the idea of thinking about that, that framework and how it would look. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble working out how they got to the particular outcome measurements they did because they seemed relatively familiar in some ways to some of the things we were saying weren't enough that makes sense oh yeah no i think you're right and i will just uh, for listeners highlight that they used as two of their outcome measures for their educational aspects of their uh, program one thing called the team effectiveness evaluation uh, which is based on the mayo high performance teamwork scale where they ask their participants uh, or they rate their participants teamwork uh, and then they also do a learner evaluation knowledge attitudes and behaviors again where now the learners are rating uh, how they feel afterwards and you're right look I, I admit to a bias here. I'm not a big fan of these scales. I don't necessarily know what to do with it when the scale median moves from 1.4 to 1.8. I don't know what to do with that number or how important it is, uh, but that's my bias. They are measures. They are things that we can put into a more comprehensive thing. And the thing I like about that is we don't say that's the end of it. We say, sure, this is one thing that we've measured, but there's a more comprehensive approach to this. And I think that was really their point. So they essentially then just applied this to their own program as an illustration of that. Uh, and I think offer it as a little bit of a framework that others might think about if they're doing program uh, evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think always a useful prompt for us to reflect on how we're holding ourselves accountable. Yeah, we must be able to demonstrate some kind of value, uh, even if to ourselves. Mm. Well, Ben, another nice little four papers to round out our year. It's been a pleasure talking with you every month about simulation literature. I think some people are listening to us as well. Uh, those of you who are, happy holidays and thank you so much. And please do let us know if ever you want us to talk about a paper that you've written, uh, talk about a paper that you've read. Uh, we are always keen to hear. We're very pleased that the big sim journal, Simulation Healthcare Advances, IJOS and Clinical Simulation in Nursing continue to give us lots of great work. So kudos to all the authors, editors, reviewers who do that hard work that we get to then uh, talk about and capitalize on, uh, but also lots of other journals that haven't got simulation in their names, but which we know publish simulation literature. So, uh, Ben, thank you. No, absolutely. It's been a lovely year and uh, certainly many moments I've treasured with you over the last 12 months and looking forward to repeating it next year. And for Simulcast listeners, we've got a couple of episodes coming up. There, As I said, there will be the Sim Reconnect recap. Uh, plus also Ben has recorded an excellent episode with Michaela Colby. So listen out for that one in January as well. And we'll be back. We're having January off, but we'll be back in February with the next Journal Club. So uh, Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 